Well, good morning. We get to take a little bit of a break this morning, being um, that is Palm Sunday um, from our regularly scheduled program to be able to look at something a little bit different as we celebrate uh, what is often called Holy Week. If you're not sure what Holy Week is, it's not a week where you have to be especially on your best behavior. It is just simply a week um, where we have an opportunity as a church to, in just a week's time, to kind of walk through what the last days of Jesus' life was like. Um, Here, Thursday, Palm Sunday, when he entered into Jerusalem uh, as king, and Friday when he was crucified, and then Sunday we'll get to celebrate when he he rises again. Um, We'll look at the account of this in Mark 11. I preached on this passage last year um, and looked at John chapter 12. All the Gospels include this section. And I do just want to say a little bit of a word. Um, I'm sure you were all here and memorized exactly what was said last year and all of the years before that. But I'm sure Will would attest to this as well, that one of the hard parts about preaching some of these stories that come up again and again and again and again, it feels very difficult to feel like you're not saying the same thing over and over and over again. Like how to, how to make it fresh, how to make it um, really challenge us deep down. And to that then, um, I think one of the blessings of having to prepare to teach is the community of people that have gone before. Um, this week, I've been especially blessed by Joe Novenson, who's a pastor at uh, Lookout Mountain Prez in Chattanooga, um, talking about this, uh, my father as well, my wife, her fingerprints are all over this, um, and some good friends of mine as well, to, to help challenge me to what is Jesus really calling us to. And really, we all have that exact same pleasure. Every time we gather together in community group, um, when we debrief this, when we struggle with this, we always have those who went before um, to add their own perspective and help us um, as we try to engage with God and what he says for us. Um, So with that being said, I want to let you into, this is kind of how my mind works as I'm approaching thinking about this um, in Holy Week. So when I was, especially a kid, I remember this. Um, I always found doing this on different days a little bit dramatic, like... You know, we get sad on Friday because Jesus dies. And I just want to say, like, we all know he rose again. Like, (laughs) we know what's going to happen. Like, why is today different than any other day? Um, But I think we, as we approach this, we are all gathering together as a people who are in between. We have not yet done what Jesus has done in his full span. We have not died yet. Those that are here, uh, we have not faced the Lord. We have not been raised again. And what we have at looking Jesus' life, we have Jesus as our older brother um, who went ahead of us, who did what we will all have to do eventually. And when we look at him, we have a picture of the full story in one. That sin is atoned for on the cross as Jesus really did die. As he rose again, that there is a real resurrection even for us even though we haven't faced it yet. As he was led out of the tomb that God is satisfied in the work that he did. And so where we struggle with the in-between moments of not having lived the whole story yet, we have Jesus who went ahead of us that we can look to. We can look to him to receive hope. 
we can look to him to have confidence to be free from our guilt um, and to anticipate the good things that he has coming for us. And so this passage, as we get to this, rather than actually experiencing all these things, we, we live today as subjects of the king who went ahead of us. And this passage we're about to read, this is a heavily kingship-focused um, passage and that is going to describe to us a lot about Jesus as the king that we live under even right now. So with that being said, let me read this. I will read Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles, you are no more advantage before God, but you might be an advantage this morning because we'll look at a few things the beginning and after this um, section. But let me read. This is God's Word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, and those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, we um, come before you this morning utterly dependent on you. We are dependent on you to teach us. We are dependent on you to disrupt the patterns in our lives and the things that we depend on so that we can see you and we can see ourselves clearly. And we are dependent on you to open up our hearts that we might receive the good news that you have for us and the type of kingship that you bring um, as our Messiah, the one who came to us. So as we study this, we just ask humbly that you would help us, that you would help the words that I speak, um, that they would be clear. You would help us all to be able to connect this to our lives in tangible ways, that we would walk out of here nothing short of praise at you being our king. And we put all this in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have two points this morning. Um, just two. What I want to look at is what Christ is claiming to do by this event. And then after that, uh, we're going to look at Christ's character and how he actually goes about doing what he is doing. This is, uh, this is a story where there's a lot of action going on, but there's a lot of backstory to it, and there's a lot of drama, and there is a monumental claim that Jesus is making, not by words, but by his actions publicly. And what this is, just to give you a heads up, what this is going to do is this is going to force us to deal with Jesus. It's going to put a choice in front of us of, is he really the one that he says he is? Is he the one that we are going to entrust with our own lives as our authority or not? 
And this is a choice that there is no way we can get out of the way. And Jesus is coming on the scene publicly like this. We are going to have to deal with him. So we'll unpack all that. Um, But I think the manner in what he does, the manner in how he does it, means everything. So I hope this is convicting in the first place. I hope this is challenging to our hearts. But I also hope in the end, and looking at the good news of what Jesus is up to, that he will take where he disrupts us, and he will meet us with good news so that we would rejoice to depend on him. So let's look at this. First, Christ's claim. What is he claiming to do in this passage as he is riding into Jerusalem? This is, let me just set the stage for a little bit. This is headed to the end of Jesus' ministry. He is on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and this will be the end of the road for Jesus. And the situation that he is walking into is this. This is, he is in Israel. And so if you are a Jew in Israel, there are several things that are not going your way and that you are not happy about. First of all, you don't own your own land. Israel is occupied by Rome. They are under another authority. Um, And with that, if your own identity as a Jew is that you are a special person that God has plucked out of all nations and you are near and dear to him and all other nations are supposed to come to God through um, this people that he has chosen, um, who he makes his name known through. So you're not very happy. And at the same time, there have been these passages floating through the Old Testament, these clues that there would be trouble ahead for the Jewish people, but one day there would be a figure called the Messiah who was going to come and he is going to make everything right once again. And we saw that in Ezekiel chapter 37. This is just one of the passages, one of these clues that one day there would be a figure in the line of David's throne, Israel's greatest king, who was going to come, who was going to settle political dispute, who is going to cleanse and purify worship. Everything is going to be right. Your your very ethnicity, your value um, as a people group, your whole story leading up to these point, these all are creating significant longings in your personhood that speak to your own value. And you are longing for things to be made right so your own value is vindicated. With this, there have been a lot of political stirrings, uprisings happening in the day, and that is because there's another situation going on, and that is with Rome. So Rome is occupying you, and Pontius Pilate is prefect. He's ruling over your, your part of um, the country. If you remember who Pontius Pilate is, he's the one who presides over the, um, the trial where Jesus was crucified. And if you want lessons on good leadership, Pilate is one of those people who shows you exactly what not to do, particularly in a tense situation. He had no regard for Jewish identity at all. He would just, out of spite, hang up these um, tributes to Caesar, um, Tiberius, or these very Roman things, um, very, very insensitive to the people. He would take money from the temple to build an aqueduct, you know, He was just a hot-tempered bull in the china shop. He did whatever he wanted. And if you were a Jew, you don't really like this guy very much. So what we have here is a powder keg situation 
of one people group who is filled with longing, who doesn't feel value, who is waiting on a savior to come and liberate them. And you're also, there is a situation of tension here that because of the skirmishes and because of the rebellions, things are likely to go off at any moment. And on comes the scene, this guy named Jesus, and he starts doing some weird things like healing people. He's teaching in a way this claiming, seems like, is claiming authority. Um, He has authority over demons. And so, Jesus gets this following of people that are full of questions, that are thinking, maybe this is our guy. Maybe he has come at last. Maybe this is the guy who is going to set us free. But rather than actually own up to that for the most of the time, because of the situation he was in, then Jesus would not say it. He would heal people and tell them to be quiet. He would not make himself known publicly because if he did, the sensitivity of the situation, things were likely to go off and he's not likely to get to do what, um, what he needs to do. That's the background of what is going on. Then if we get to chapter 10, right before um, this happens, something very crucial. If you got your Bible, you can look back. The, Jesus is marching from Jericho to Jerusalem And this guy named Bartimaeus is blind, and he calls out and says, Son of David, have mercy on me. So he is referring to Jesus as this long one hoped for, of which Jesus has been hush-hush about all the time. And at first Jesus ignores him, and then he calls out again, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then for really for the first time, Jesus stops. And he turns around in front of the whole crowd, and he heals the guy. So in Jesus' action, he has actually responded to this title that he has been reluctant to respond to all along, which is a way of saying, even if you don't understand what that title means, that's me. I'm here. In public, I'm accepting this role, this title right now. That Jesus is the long-hoped-for Savior, the one that would come for Israel. The story goes on. He travels all the way to uh, almost outside of Jerusalem. And on the way, he has these funny commands that he tells his disciples to go get this donkey or this colt. It says a donkey in Matthew here. It's just called a colt. It's really the same thing. And he asks them to go get it and bring it to him. And he sits upon it and he rides this pilgrimage from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is during the Passover time, and it was very common for people to go to Jerusalem. It was not at all common for people to ride donkeys. This was a sign of royalty um, that was like a royal procession of somebody from out of town returning as a king, as a hero, to Jerusalem. So Jesus, to put it simply, was attracting a lot of attention just by sitting on this coal and riding in, that he is making a statement that he is a king. And not a kind of private king that we might just privately follow as a disciple. He's doing this in front of everybody, for everybody to see marching into the capital city as a royal ruler. So him doing this is actually a claim to authority. Like He is claiming to be a king and authority over this place, marching into his territory that he owns. And they're basically saying there's a new sheriff in town. 
One more thing he does. After this, if you follow further in your Bible, which I, re- I wish now I had printed it for you in your worship folder, but after these verses, you have this weird thing about a fig tree. I'm not going to go into that right now. And, but then the first thing he does after he gets in Jerusalem is here, verse 11, he marches into the temple, he looks around, he surveys it, and then he comes back the next day prepared, and he wipes it clean. He overturns money, he, he clears it of injustice and uses that are, the temple was not meant for. So what's that claim? So not only is he the long-hoped-for Savior of Israel, that he's actually acknowledged publicly, not only has he publicly attracted a lot of attention to himself and claiming to be a king, but he has also marched right into the very heart of what it means to be a Jew, to be in relationship with God, to worship. And he has wiped it clean. In other words, claiming to be that this is mine. I speak on behalf of God. I am in charge of your worship. I am the authority of you, of your history. I am authority over this town politically. I am authority over your worship. Jesus is making in his actions, even without saying much at all, he is making a public claim of authority. All these things he owns. He has come out, as it were, And he has made a statement. Jesus is the real one in charge. Despite whoever else is out there, whoever, what other traditions, whoever else might claim authority, he is coming out saying that whatever whatever you think, I'm the one in charge here. And here's what I want us to do with that. Like, think about what if somebody claims this kind of authority, what do we do? You kind of have to deal with it in one way or the other. I think about it in this way. So we, base level parenting, one of our rules is you are not allowed to play in the road. Um, But surprisingly, something so clear um, can actually get really murky. Um, So our kids will go in out of the road and like, oh, well, I was riding my bike and I was going too fast. I just had to turn around the driveway. I just, you know, kind of. Went in the road and came right back. You know, I'm good. Or the ball just went in the road and I just went and got it. Or I'm just sitting on the side. My feet are hanging over into the road, you know. I mean, it's, it gets kind of unclear. But, so they're outside, they're playing in the road, and either Lauren and I come out and we stand on the front porch and we look and we say, come get out of the road. If you're a child... All of a sudden, you now have to deal with us and the authority that we may or may not have in that moment. Because at that point, after it's been said publicly, the authority has been claimed, you have to either obey it and respond, like submit to that authority, or you have to rebel against it. There's no more middle ground left. All of that murkiness has kind of gone by the wayside, and it has disappeared. And so this is what Jesus is doing here is kind of like that. Through his actions, as he is coming on the scene, and he is forcing a choice. He's making a very public claim that has grave consequences over who he is, 
what he can do and how we should respond to him, whether we should surrender to him and follow him in his authority or not. There's no middle ground left. He has made a claim that is so significant and demands a response. I think we like to think that we're free people. We like to think that we are kind of the master of our own um, destinies or what we do. But there are so many. I mean, we're all under earthly authorities in one way, um, whether they be political or at work or whatever. You know, they're experts. That's the guaranteed way to win an argument is experts say, whoever those people are. There's authorities that we agree to. There's the things people say about us that hold an authority over us that we really listen to and pay attention to. Um, There's the Twitter group, you know, the consensus of, you know, what the social group is saying that holds an authority based on shame in a lot of ways. Our lives are defined by authority in one way or the other that we choose or we don't choose to um, submit to. But Jesus here in these claims, being the fulfillment of the story, being the one who is actually over all earthly authorities, the one who has authority even our worship, I think what he's doing here, and this is what was challenging to me, he has the authority to disrupt. He has the authority to come into your life and to rearrange things, to start poking holes in how we worship, the things that we hold most dear, the other things that we look to for authority. He has the authority to move in like he claims it and clears the temple, that this is mine and I can shake this thing up. I can realign it in a better way. And that's not super comfortable. I mean, he has the authority to leave us and to lead us into situations that are not ideal. Um, he has the authority to claim that he is the king when our circumstances are not going well. All of these things. He's the king. And he has forced a choice on us here that are we going to respond by pursuing him, becoming his disciple, learning from him through all of these circumstances, or are we not? Are we going to trade that for other versions of authorities that we can have on our own? That's the challenge part to us. This is what Jesus has claimed to be, the king. And this claim, in one way or another, it forces us to deal with it, to respond to him. But here's how I want to transition this second point, um, to look at Christ's character. What do you think about it? Like... I think if when someone stands up and says somebody has authority, that word is just feels icky. Like the word submitting to someone, it just feels very violating, I think. Like that is not a comfortable thing at all. Because as we you know experience our own earthly authorities, that because of human self-interest, there is just always some element where we lose something. We lose something to, to earthly authorities. We feel like the things that we value um, might not be valued exactly, and we couldn't, can't pursue those things how we want. Um, we essentially are putting ourselves at someone else's mercy to be under their authority. And that, in human terms, rarely works out perfectly. 
if we can look at the whole biblical story and see that to be at someone's mercy, at a human being's mercy, is fraught with all kinds of difficulty, all kinds of peril. And so I want us to recognize, as we are dealing with Jesus' claim to authority, probably all of us are coming to this, and even that idea, with some kind of inner um, bristling that, I don't know if I want that. I want to make sure things go well for me. I don't want to just fully give myself over. But with that, we have to consider what kind of person Jesus is. What is he actually doing? His character, I think, here makes all the difference. And it can be summed up here in this point. That because it is risky to put ourselves at the mercy of somebody else, if we get inside what Jesus is doing, he is actually putting himself in the highest position of danger so he can extend mercy rather than take it from us. There is just a fundamental upside-down nature to what he is doing and how he is claiming his authority. And let's just unpack this a little bit. First, let's look at his motivation. There are two things here, his motivation and his demands. What is he demanding of? Before he makes this journey, the last thing he says before we get the story of him moving from Jericho to um, and he heals blind Bartimaeus is that famous verse in Mark 10, chapter 45. He says, the Son of Man himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is often considered the purpose. This is the central part of Mark's gospel that he wants us to see about Jesus. So what does that mean? Just breaking those out. He did not come to be served, but to serve. So his authority and his leadership is not self-seeking, but it is actually putting the benefit of others ahead. It is service. It is giving himself up for their benefit. As a ransom, do you know what a ransom is? Um, you know, if a lot of movies we hear that, it's a payment given to release somebody from bondage. As he is given as a ransom for many, he is using his authority not to put you in bondage, but to actually lead you to freedom. To buy you out of the authorities that would put you in bondage and who would take life away. He is about freedom. But lastly, look at this. He is, how is he doing this? He is giving his own life as a ransom for many. He is laying down what is his and giving it to us. This is, I think what this is, is that even as we bristle at his authority, this is an ultimate expression not of abuse, but of love. And as he is marching to Jerusalem here, claiming to be king, he knows that the powers that be are going to have to deal with him. And what this means is that his life is going to come to an end. This is not a journey of him going to defeat, in an earthly sense, these powers, but actually to let, them, let himself be defeated so he can give himself to us. And this is the best, this is an imperfect illustration, but this is the, this seems to get at this to me, what this does to our bristling in him. Have you ever been really angry and just upset and irritable at somebody or something, and somebody comes along and rather responding to you in anger, they just give you a hug and it makes you cry? It's like taking all of that pent up frustration 
And rather than answering it according to its kind, it expresses its own power to give love. This is what Jesus is all about. This is what his authority is all about. This is what his claim of being the king is, that he has come to give love to you. But there's more than this. This is in his motivation, what he came for. And this is just think about his demands. Like that can be good. But if you think of, just think about this last week. I mean, if I evaluate my own heart this last week, even in thinking and struggling through these things, it is just so divided. Like I see that. I get it. I see the love that he has given for me. And yet, quite frankly, often I'm just so tired. I'm stressed out. Like, there are things I'm afraid of. There are all these forces going on, and it it just brings up this issue of, can I really do that in the first place? Like, even with his expression of love, can I respond? Can my heart ever be pure and actually return that kind of love for what it demands? And this is what just really stood out to me as I was reflecting on it this week. Think about what Christ is doing. He is about to march into Jerusalem. He knows, and he alone, he's marching to his death. His disciples don't know. Um, The crowd doesn't know. He knows that. He knows what's coming. And he has the option to say, you know, I don't know that I really want to do this. I was thinking about Magic Johnson this week. If you follow the Lakers, he's like, yeah, I don't want this stress anymore. Someone else do it. Um, You know, Jesus could have said that. And I'd like to put myself in that position. Would I, have, would I have the strength to make that choice if I was him? And I, I really don't know. It doesn't look good. But Jesus made that choice and did not back down. He was willingly misunderstood by everybody who had... He was doing this for them. They had no idea what he was doing. He was willingly misunderstood He willingly went to his death. He willingly made the choice. He knew that we, you and I, every day so struggle to make. And he did that as a gift. So rather than call us to go through the whole process of what he had to do, that through him he can give us the result of his work. And because of his work, he can throw that embrace around us, even as we struggle and speak that love right into our hearts. So in the end, we're pushed with this. This is Christ's motivation. These are his demands. This character of what Christ is up to, the character of his authority, is fundamentally different than anything else we know. And it puts the choice in front of us. It's like this. We can choose to say no and to do what we want and to keep our own Um, authority, to submit to the ones we want, and essentially be alone. We can choose to be alone. We can choose to go our own way. Or we can choose to surrender to the God who loved us by taking this journey, marching to the cross, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so that's what I want to leave us with as we are entering in this week and thinking through this Jesus' last days, uh, the Passion Week. Um, putting this choice before us. Who are we going to follow? Who is actually worth following? And who is bent and determined to use their authority to love us well and get the best? Let's pray together.
Dear Father, thank you for Jesus. I think we all can reflect on this and think through the ways that we so struggle to receive the good news that is preached to us and the work that you have done. Our hearts are divided. We love ourselves. We're tired and we're afraid. We thank you for him. But we ask that in your mercy and your spirit that you would open our hearts, that you would calm us as we bristle against seeing you as our king and following you as our authority, and that we would be melted and we would surrender to your love above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.